Well, I want to say hello again to everybody who's online. Again, I'm just so glad that you're joining us, and, um, and uh, I want to thank you once again for, for staying connected and uh, just being so faithful to this church. And I want to remind you that if you'd like to give to this church and to the mission and vision of what God is doing in this church to this community, you can give on your way out in the box right there, or you can give online at afraidofforsquare.church. Again, I almost said my old church's name. <laughs> And I, like, just caught myself right before I said it. I'm amazed that it's been a year of COVID. And, uh, and I think all of us are, are ready to, for something new, right? We're ready for something new. But, but I think we, all, we also have to take a moment. And, and, and through the hardship and through the, the trials, we have to learn to appreciate some of the things that God has taught us, I know for me in my life, God has really shown me uh, what's valuable, what's truly valuable. And as a pastor, you know, so, so much of the church measures success by, by, by attendance, by people who physically gather here in the building. And, um, and, and we've learned now to, to measure success in a different way, that it's not so much about the people, uh, the numbers of people here, but it's about uh, engagement and discipleship and bringing people closer to Jesus. And so we've learned to value that. And I've learned to value time with my family, with, with so much closed down and, and limited places to go and places to eat. There's, I've just spent so much more time with my family. I've learned to value that a whole lot more. And I am appreciative of all of that. Well, if you're joining us uh, for the first time uh, online or here in person, you caught us on a great day. We are going through the book of Daniel, and we're in a series called Exiles. And the book of Daniel uh, is not an adventure story. We've been talking about this, and if you want to catch up on our, on our series so far, you can watch them all online. But the book of Daniel is not an adventure story, although it is full of adventure. There's fiery furnaces and lion's dens and kings and dreams and visions, and it is full of adventure. It's not an adventure story. It's not a prophetic manual, although it has so much prophetic uh, nuances and so many prophetic things within the book. The book of Daniel was written to bring hope to a people who are in exile, who are waiting to be reunited with their home. And it's instruction for how to live godly in the midst of a godless world. You have these people of God that were taken from their homeland, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and many other uh, Jews who were taken from their homeland, and now they are residents in the kingdom of Babylon, and they're asked to participate in idolatry and participate in what's happening in the culture. And so the book of Daniel is really instruction to show us how not only we can survive in the midst of a pagan culture, but God's people will thrive in the midst of a pagan culture if we, tr- if we remain faithful to who God is in our life. And uh, today we're going to be in Daniel chapter 4. So if you would grab your Bibles or your phones, you can turn there with me. Uh, I'm going to set this chapter up because we're not going to read the whole thing. We're going to read the last half of Daniel, Daniel chapter 4, starting at verse 28. But here's the setup. Daniel chapter 4, King Nebuchadnezzar, has another dream. Go figure, right? It's amazing. This king, this pagan king, has had three dreams so far, and it's only been the first four chapters of the book of Daniel. But God speaks to this king over and over again, and once again, the king does not know the meaning of his dream. 
So once again, the king calls his magicians and diviners and sorcerers and his wise people. And once again, they can't tell him the meaning of his dream. So what does he do? He calls the man who can, the man who does know the interpretation, Daniel. Daniel is gifted with the ability to interpret dreams. And he stands before the king and listens to the king's dream. And the king begins to tell him of this disturbing dream that he had. It's a reoccurring dream that Nebuchadnezzar is having. And he says, I dreamed that I saw a great tree that rose uh, into the sky, almost touching heaven. And, and on this tree, there was fruit on its branches, and it provided fruit and shade for the animals below. And it was a great tree, and it's, this dream starts out very pleasant, but takes a very dark turn very quickly because he said, but in this dream, there was a messenger from heaven that came down and declared that the tree be cut down and left at its roots, but that the root, that the stump, would be preserved by binding it with bronze and iron. And then the, the messenger declared to the stump that you will, your mind will change and be like that of an animal. You will crawl on all fours. You will eat grass with the cattle in the field. Your hair will grow long. You will be like a beast. This is a disturbing dream. This is something that's out of a, a, a fairy tale, right? And, and, and Nebuchadnezzar is alarmed. And when he tells Daniel his dream, the Bible says that Daniel is alarmed. He hears this dream and he's, he's a little shooken up by the meaning of this dream because he knows what it means. And he looks at the king and he says, King, I wish this dream was not about you. And this is a testament to Daniel's faithfulness, how he served a pagan king, the king who took him out of his homeland and brought him into servitude, the king who took him out of his homeland and brought him into slavery under a Babylonian empire. Daniel looks at this king and, and, and honors him and says, King, I, I wish this wasn't about you. I wish this was about your enemies. But this dream that you see is about you. This great tree that you saw represents you your kingdom has grown wide you have you have you've been uh you've been great your kingdom has been made great but the lord is going to cut you down because of your pride and he's going to humble you and you will live as a beast in the field uh for seven times and we don't know what this what this phrase seven times mean a lot of people thinks think it means seven years we don't know if it was seven weeks or what it was but he says for a period of seven times this will be like this until you humble yourself and acknowledge the lord and your life, and I'm paraphrasing this, and, and the king, uh, he, he, uh, he listens to Daniel's interpretation, and Daniel pleads with Nebuchadnezzar at this moment. He says, king, would you humble yourself? Would you change your ways? Would you give charity to the poor? Would you consider other people so that this might not happen to you? And he's trying to stay God's hand from King Nebuchadnezzar. Well, the king, the Bible says that 12 months later, the king is on his rooftop, and he's looking out over his kingdom. And you've got to picture what he might be looking at. Babylon was really a wonder to behold. It was a magnificent empire. King Nebuchadnezzar was a builder. He loved to build. He, he, he put together all these magnificent buildings all around his empire. He, let me just give you some statistics about what historians say about Babylon. It says the outer walls were 56 miles long. They were 80 feet wide, and they were 320 feet high. Those are just the outer walls. There was 53 temples dedicated to various gods. And each of these temples, many of these temples would have had these great statues of gold in each one of these temples. 
He had at least three palaces that he inhabited. They had a 400-foot bridge that spanned the Euphrates River. And uh, most notable, one of the seven wonders of the world was in Babylon, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. And so you can imagine that King Nebuchadnezzar is looking at this empire that he is in charge of. He's probably looking at the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. And this is what happens. We're going to take it from Daniel chapter 4, verse 28. Let's read it together. It says, all this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, is this not the great Babylon I have built as a royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? And even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass by before you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? And at that same time, my sanity was restored. My honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. And now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven because everything he does is right, and all of his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Wow. King Nebuchadnezzar has had more dreams, and more experiences with God, I think, than many of us have had in a lifetime. He has been spoken to uh, in, in these dreams, and King Nebuchadnezzar has learned a lot about the Most High God in the course of his lifetime. And I, I, would, I would say that, that, that some of the main things that King Nebuchadnezzar learned were these, that God is fully in control. The Lord was teaching him in this moment that he is fully in control. He is sovereign, and he appoints kings and kingdoms. See, King Nebuchadnezzar learned in chapter 2 when, when he had the, the, the dream about the statue with all the medals and he didn't know the interpretation of the dream. He learned that God is the revealer of secrets, that he's all-knowing, that He is the only one who knows the mysteries of the universe. In chapter 3, in the fiery furnace, King Nebuchadnezzar learns that God is all-powerful and he can save his people from certain death. And in this chapter, he learns that God is sovereign and his control has control over all peoples, all kingdoms of the earth. He can tear kingdoms down and bring kingdoms up. But I wonder to myself, did King Nebuchadnezzar really come to the saving knowledge of God towards the end of this experience? 
This is a, a question that's open for debate and, and many uh, circles. And, and there's some people that would say, well, when we read this declaration of King Nebuchadnezzar at the end of this experience, we could say it looks like he came to the knowledge of a saving God. And I would hope that maybe one day we'd go to heaven and we would see King Nebuchadnezzar there. Hopefully he made, uh, he made the saving knowledge of God his assurance and, and we would see him in heaven. But we just don't know because, because he was this pagan king who believed in multiple gods. So maybe he just thought that the most high was one of many gods. Maybe he made uh, God the most high his only God. We just don't know the answer to this question. But what we do know is that historians would say that King Nebuchadnezzar only lived another three to five years after this encounter. So close to the end of his life, he had this experience and, uh, and many people would say that he did eventually come to the saving knowledge of God. We just don't know. But he did learn through the course of his life that God is in control of all things. You have the most powerful man in the known world with the most powerful army, the most powerful kingdom, the most wondrous kingdom, one of the wealthiest men on the earth, and all of it is stripped away from him in an instant because the Lord said so and because the Lord declared it. He is sovereign over all. Another thing that King Nebuchadnezzar learns is that God's purpose for this experience was not just to educate King Nebuchadnezzar, but it was to transform him. It was to transform his heart. I believe that God takes us through experiences in our life, not to, uh, not to just educate us, not just to say, ha ha, this is what happens when you sin, when you walk away from me. That's not God's heart at all. But he wants to transform our lives. He wants to transform who we are. God didn't teach the king a lesson for the sake of executing judgment. Rather, in his grace, the purpose of the experience was to transform King Nebuchadnezzar's heart and understand God more. See, my kids at a young age, they like to do dangerous things. Just the other day, I saw my daughter Zoe try to take a, an old key and stick it in an outlet. And I was saying, Zoe, don't do that. That's, that's bad news. You know, but I remember my kids trying to touch the stovetop or trying to touch something that was hot. And they would do it over and over again. But how many of you know that as a loving father, I'm going to say, don't touch that. It's going to burn you, right? Hey, don't touch that. It's hot. Listen, you have the wrong mindset about this stovetop. This desire that you have for the stovetop is not a healthy desire, right? We need to transform your mind in this area, right? And how many of you know that if my kids continually try to touch the stovetop, I might just one day as a good father, let them touch the stovetop. Not because I want to say, ha ha, I told you so, right? My purpose isn't to educate my kids and how I'm all knowing and they should listen to my voice, but my purpose is to transform their mind and how they think of that stovetop. God does that to us with sin. Sometimes he, the Bible, you know, the Bible says that in God's perfect world, he created this world without sin, but through our selfishness and our pride, we disobeyed the Lord and sin entered the world. But God wants to transform our minds about sin, wants us to think differently about the things that we desire. His purpose is not just to educate us, but he wants to transform our lives. Another thing that the king learns and he declares this. The last verse in this chapter is really a summary of the entire experience where King Nebuchadnezzar says that everything God does is right and all of his ways are just. Let me ask you this morning, do you believe that statement? It's a hard statement. Now think before you answer, do you really believe that all of God's ways are just, that he is right? Because maybe you're here this morning and you have a question in your mind. Why do bad things happen to good people? 
If we serve a God who is just and a God who is right, then why do bad things happen to good people? Why does this happen in our world? It's a question that many people wrestle with. Wrestle with. And let me just say that, that sickness and war and division was never a part of God's original design. In the book of Genesis, chapters 1 and 2, uh, we see this, this design of a garden, of a perfect world, where God walks with Adam in the cool of the day. And this world is without sin, it's without sickness, it's without war, it's just as God had pictured it. But in mankind's selfishness and in their pride and wanting to be more like God, thinking that they weren't already, because how many of you know that the Bible says they were made in God's image? They were already like God. But the serpent deceived them, and in their pride, they thought, no, I can do more. I can decide what is right for my life. I can decide what is good and evil. Therefore, I will take control, and I will decide what is best for me. And sin entered the world. Brokenness entered the world. And now we have war and division. In our pride, humanity disobeyed God, but he made a way through Jesus to lead us back to the original design. The Bible begins, I, I, I heard this said from my former pastor, that if you, if you took sin out of the Bible, you know what you would have? A pamphlet. You have Genesis chapters 1 and 2, and Revelation chapters 21 and 22. And everything in between is what happened to humanity when they walked away from God. But how many of you know that when you read Genesis 1 and 2, we have this picture of a perfect garden. And when we read Revelation 21 and 22, it's all this imagery of a garden-like city. And the picture here is that God is taking his people back to the original design, to a place without sin, to a place without sickness, a place without war and division and racism and all of this stuff that we deal with today. God is taking his people back. God is right and his ways are just and he made a way for us despite our selfishness and our pride to come back to him and live with him once again. So for the remainder of today, I want to talk about pride and humility because that's what this narrative is really all about. King Nebuchadnezzar experiences the consequences of his pride of thinking that he is bigger than God. But let me ask, let's ask an honest question. What, what is so bad about pride? What's so bad about pride? I mean, what the king did was it so wrong that he just acknowledged his achievements, right? Was he just acknowledging his achievements? Why did it merit such a harsh punishment? He was taking credit for his kingdom, right? I mean, of all the sins to commit, of murder and adultery and all these things to commit, pride is kind of low on the totem pole, don't we think? I mean, I'm, I'm a little proud, but it doesn't, matter. it doesn't merit the punishment of turning into a beast for seven years and eating like a cow, right? I don't know. What's so bad about pride? And we do this all the time when, at work and at home, and we like to say, look what I accomplished. Look what I did. Look what I've made of myself. I worked hard. I saved my money. I started from the bottom, and now I'm here, right? And we take pride in our accomplishments, and when friends and relatives come over, we assume that we're the experts now, and we become the ought to do's in our life. You know what you ought to do is, Take it from me. Take it from me. I'm the expert. I saved my money. I made something of myself. Take it from me. I've already done this. I've already been there. I'm the professional. You know what you ought to do is we all have an ought to do in our life, don't we? But the king forgot that the first two verses of the book of Daniel says this. 
that it was the Lord that delivered the king of Judah into King Nebuchadnezzar's hands. It wasn't King Nebuchadnezzar. The Bible says that it was the Lord who gave it to King Nebuchadnezzar and allowed him to take back the the temple's artifacts and sacred items back to his kingdom. It was the Lord who delivered Babylon to King Nebuchadnezzar. It was, excuse me, who delivered the king of Judah, the kingdom of Israel into King Nebuchadnezzar's hand. It was the Lord, but the king stands on his rooftop and he says, is this not the great Babylon that I have made as a royal residence for my power and for the glory of my majesty? He takes credit for all the things that God has done in his life. Nebuchadnezzar wasn't just appreciating his kingdom. He was completely ignorant to the fact that God is completely sustaining all life and everything we have is a result of his goodness and his grace. God so wanted to get the king's attention. It was God saying, hello, I'm the one who's in complete control, Nebuchadnezzar. You're not. I'm the one who can take it from you in an instant, not you. He wanted the kid, the king to know that he is the one that was in control. So let's talk about pride. Here's a few things that we know about pride from the, from the Bible. When we read his word, we know this about pride, that pride is at the core, is at the root of all evil. Pride flows from the worst mistake of all, which is putting oneself in God's place. I will decide what's best for me. I don't need any help. My accomplishments, my abilities is a result of my greatness alone. It's a result of what I've done in my life alone. Think of Genesis 3 again, where it all began. It was the result of two humans who determined that they didn't need to listen to God, that they didn't need to to heed the advice or the instruction from the Lord, and instead they took matters into their own hand. They put their selves in God's place and said, I will from now on determine what is right and what is wrong, and what happened? They ate from the tree, and they were given the knowledge of good and evil and believed that now they had control. Now they had authority. Now they had power. See, I, uh, having a newborn in my house, little Leo, he's healthy, he's happy. Hello to my wife who's watching at home. They are, uh, they're doing great, but having a newborn in my house is such a constant reminder of how fragile life is. That, that he needs us for everything. Mom, he needs mom and dad just to turn his head, right? To sit up and cough. He, he needs us for everything. And it's such a, a reminder of how fragile our life is that every second, your heart could stop beating 30 seconds from now. And every moment that you've been given is an act of grace, is an act of goodness from God, sustaining your life. All of your accomplishments, all of your accolades, your house, your money, your children, your skills, your knowledge, it's all a result of a creator that has been good to you. Despite what you've done, he is sustaining us even now. He is holding our lives together even now. And when we fail to recognize that, when we fail to see that God is the one who's given us the grace to keep living, who's given us all the good, beautiful things in our life, when we fail to see that, we think that we are the ones who did it. And pride starts to build up in us and it starts to distance us from God. Instead of taking the credit, we're called to take up our cross and follow Jesus, to recognize that it's all an act of grace and now I'm, I'm, I'm asked by my, my, excuse me, by my Jesus to serve other people with the grace that I've been given. Another thing that we know about pride is that pride leads to anxiety and insecurity. See, when you don't trust that God is in control 
and don't see him as your provider and sustainer. The weight, all of that weight is now shifted to you, right? The weight of always measuring up, of always providing, it's crushing, and it leads to anxiety. When you believe that, that you are fully in control of your life, it's all on you now. There's no dependence on anybody else, and it's a, it's a crushing anxiety. And if your identity is found in your accomplishments or your possessions, then you will lose your worth the minute that anything is taken away from you. I know people that grew up poor, so having nice things is a validation that they're not worthless, that they're not lazy, and they put so much stock in the things that will rust and decay, but at the moment that those things are taken away from us, we begin to lose our worth. We begin to lose our identity because our, our security has been put in the, our accomplishments and the things that we've done for ourselves and the lives that we've made for ourselves. It's a dangerous road to go down when you start putting your security in the things that you've accomplished. Instead, we're supposed to put our security, our identity, we're supposed to put it on Jesus. He's the one who gives us our worth. Another thing that we know about pride is that God opposes the proud. James 4, 6 says, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Now think about that verse for just a moment. Think about that word oppose. God isn't just a little annoyed by pride. He's opposed to the proud. You are on the opposite team if you are full of pride. If you are proud, you are on the opposite team. If you're prideful, you're playing on the wrong team. Pride is at war with God. Here's why. Because it separates us from him. God so desperately wants to come into our life and say, hey, I want to provide for you. I want to take care of you. I want to be involved in your life every single day. But what pride does is say, no, I don't need you, God. I don't need you. I can do this on my own. I don't need any help. I don't need any instruction. Your word, it's a little archaic. It's a little outdated. I don't need to listen to it. I'm going to listen to the voice of my culture, the voice of my community, the voice of what the news and Facebook is telling me. God, I don't need you. That's what pride does. It separates us from him. And that's why he's so opposed to it. Because he wants to draw close to you. He wants to be close to you. The only people that Jesus was ever harsh with when we read the Gospels were the religious elite, right? The people who thought that they had a free ticket to heaven because they've done enough good deeds, right? They've accomplished enough in their life. They've obeyed the law enough. Now they get a free ticket to heaven. They are the perfect religious people. And Jesus was always harsh with them. He rebuked them. He called them blind. He called them hypocrites, He called them whitewashed tombs. He called them a brood of vipers. Why? Because they were misrepresenting God. All the people that were looking to the Pharisees to be the perfect picture of God, now they're seeing that God is this bully with a hammer in the sky who's waiting for all of us to fall in line and listen to everything he says. This is how the Pharisees portrayed God, that if you want to be close to God, you've got to do everything he says, and if you make a mistake, he's going to come down on you. They were misrepresenting God. And Jesus had the complete opposite attitude. He extended grace and patience to those who were far from God. So what is so great about humility? Let's talk about humility. This is what the Bible says about humility in 1 Peter chapter 5. Verse 5, Peter says, All of you, clothe yourself. Everybody say, clothe yourself. 
Clothe yourself with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all of your anxiety on him because he cares for you. And get this. The author of this is now linking the act of humility with awareness and alertness to the enemy's schemes because the next thing he says here is be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. See, the author, he's linking the the theme of humility with the urgency to stay alert to the enemy's schemes. Why? Because as the saying goes, pride comes before the fall. Right? When you are proud, you are blind to the enemy's schemes. And the devil knows that if he can get your mind off of God by making you look at yourself and your worth and your accomplishments, then he's got you. He can devour you. Think of Genesis 3 again. They took their mind off of God and what he said was true and right and just, and they put their minds on themselves. Now I get to determine what's right for my life. Now I get to be the one who takes care of myself. I don't need God. I want to be more, I want to be like God on my own terms. Humility is what keeps us dependent on God, and it steers us away from pride. It keeps us moving towards God, saying, God, I need you in my life. God, I want more of you. See, Peter instructs us to clothe ourselves in humility. I brought some of my jackets here today, and uh, you know, when you pick out what you're going to wear every day, how do you decide what you're going to wear? You often look at the weather app, right? And you say, okay, how hot is it going to be today? Is it going to rain today? You, c- you think about, oh, what am I going to be doing today? Am I going to be, am I going to be getting dirty today? Am I going to, who am I meeting? Am I meeting somebody important? Am I going on a date with my spouse? Am I, am I, what am I going to be, am I going to be staying home all day? And so this is my Carhartt jacket right here. And, and I wear this jacket when I know I'm going to get dirty. And uh, when I know that I'm going to be cold, this is a good thick jacket that my mother-in-law got for me for Christmas a couple years ago. It's, it's, my, it's my get dirty jacket, and I wear this when I want to get dirty. You know, this other thing that I wear right here, maybe some of you have one of these. You know, this is my, I'm in my underwear and I need to check the mail <laughs> jacket. And I don't want my neighbors to see me in my underwear, so I'm going to put on my robe. I'm not going anywhere today. I'm going to stay in the kitchen and make some coffee and stay warm on a, on a cold winter's day. This is what I wear when I, when I do that. You know, I've got another jacket here that, that uh, you know, maybe some of you in this room used to have one of these. But this is my, this is my, uh, this right here. I wear this all the time. You just don't know. This is my, I'm going to a Halloween party and, and um, from, I'm going to be a, from, you know, a character from Back to the Future or something like that. Or I'm, 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 gonna, I'm a youth pastor at youth group and we're having an 80s night or something like that. That's what I wear that one for. But, you know, I got, I got one more jacket here. This is, this is one that I wear if I, you know, just want to look a little bit nicer. Maybe I'm going on a date with my wife and I put this on. See, we choose what we wear every single day. We wake up and we make a conscious decision. I'm going to put that on. And Peter talks about clothing yourself in humili- humility. And let me, let me tell you a little secret about humility. Humility is perfect for every occasion. It's perfect for every occasion. doesn't matter what you're doing. Humility is perfect for every occasion. And, but we have to choose to put it on. We have to choose to clothe ourselves in, uh, in it. It doesn't just come naturally. In fact, it, it's not natural to choose humility. 
It's not natural to take off your eyes off of yourself. It's more natural to put your eyes on yourself. But we have to choose to take our eyes off of ourself and to clothe ourselves in humility. We wake up and think, will today be all about me? Am I going to make today all about me, or am I going to make today all about other people? This is a, a valid question to ask. And believe me, if you wake up every day, and before you leave the house, you make a conscious decision in your mind that whoever I see today, I'm going to make them feel more valued than they've ever been more valued. If you make a conscious decision that when I see this person at work, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to greet them with the biggest smile. I'm going to ask them about their day. I'm going to offer to pray for them if there's an opportunity. I'm going to make my life about them today. If you make that conscious decision, your life will be changed. Your life will be changed not only because God is using you, but, but there's a reward that comes from acting humble. There is a reward that is experienced when you take your eyes off of yourself and God blesses your life. Here's what we know about humility. That humility is attractive. Humility is attractive. No matter who you meet or who you're around, humility is attractive to people because it, play, it displays Jesus. It's outwardly focused. It's not selfish. It doesn't say, look at me. It says, look at God. It doesn't say, I'm amazing. It says, you're amazing. It doesn't say, I'm great. It says, you're great. Humility is attractive to people. Each one of us knows someone who only wants to talk about themselves. They only want to talk about themselves. You never feel valued. You never feel heard when you're around them. And what's worse is that you may be that person, but you wouldn't know that you're that person because you're too prideful to see it. You're too prideful to examine your heart. You would never know that you're that person that always talks about yourself. It's a sad thing. You think other people are the problem. How come nobody wants to spend time with me? How come, how come I, I put in so much effort and nobody likes me? Nobody wants to spend time with me. You think that everybody else is the problem, but guess what? You're the problem. You don't ever consider other people's feelings. You may be that person. You may never stop to think how that person feels in that situation, how they're being valued. And on the other hand, you may know somebody who clothes themselves in humility every day, and they are a joy to be around because you always leave feeling energized, and you always leave feeling seen and heard by that person, and it makes you want to be that person who, who, who makes others feel that way when they're around you. We all have somebody in our life, hopefully, that has clothed themselves in humility, and they, they're interested in your life. They ask you, what's going on? Can I pray for you? Can I make this moment about meeting your needs? And they just fill you up. And they, they leave you feeling so loved and valued. Jesus was like this. He attracted crowds of people because he made other people the priority. And get this, he was God. It would have been so easy for Jesus to make everything about him. Okay, I'm here. I'm here, everybody. Look, I'm the Messiah. Come on, let's bring attention. Bring me gifts. It's all about me now. It, was, it would have been so easy for Jesus to do that, but he didn't act above other people. He washed his disciples' feet. He touched lepers. He embraced sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes, and he spent time with the people who were down and out and cast out of society, including loud, annoying, stubborn fishermen like Peter. Come on, 
We all, I think we, we've all, we can all identify with the person of Peter when we read the Bible. Jesus, how did you put up with this guy? Humility is attractive. Another thing that we know in, in his word is that humility protects you. This is why he links humility with staying alert to the devil's schemes. Humility protects you. See, I, I used to have this thick, flame-resistant suit that I would wear in high school when I would go to my welding class. And uh, I would put, you know, I put my helmet down. I'm not paying attention. And, and I get done, I take my helmet off, and I notice I got burn marks all over my sleeves. I wasn't paying attention. It protected me from the flames. And later on in life, I got a job at the Portland airport. I was working at PDX. I'd have to wake up at 2 a.m. in the morning in the middle of December during the Christmas rush. And I was loading these big 767s on the middle of the tarmac on the Columbia River with the wind and, and freezing rain. And this suit kept me warm. It protected me from the elements. Humility, when you clothe yourself in humility, it protects you against the devil's schemes. There's a reason that First Peter talks about humility and staying alert. See, thinking too highly of yourself is a gateway for evil. You stop considering others first. You think only of yourself. You stop relying on God and start believing that you are the ultimate authority in your life. And that's the gateway to evil. That's putting yourself in God's place. But humility is a healthy understanding of who you are. That you are great, but you're not the greatest. That you are made in the image of God, but that doesn't mean that you should be worshipped. You are great. God has made you great, but you are not the greatest. It's a healthy picture of who you are and who God has created you to be. And humility draws people closer to us as we draw closer to God. But in turn, we're drawing people closer to God. Right? When we act humble, we attract people because humility is attractive. People want to be around somebody who, who is humble and, and gentle and easy to talk to. People want to be around those kind of people. And as we pursue God and our humility, we're really bringing other people closer to Jesus. We're attracting people to Jesus. And the last thing this morning that I want to talk about humility is, is that humility is heaven's dress code. It's heaven's dress code. You ever been to a place that has a dress code? You know, where you go to a restaurant and they won't let you in unless you wear, you can't wear jeans. I've been to places where they don't let you wear jeans or t-shirts. And, and the only way I'm going to get into these places is if I wear slacks and a button-up shirt. The only way to experience the presence of God is if we humble ourselves enough to say, God, I need you. And I've messed up. I can't fix my brokenness on my own. I don't have the power to save myself from sin. I don't have the authority over life and death. That belongs to you alone. Heaven has a dress code. And we don't have the proper attire on our own. But luckily, Paul, he talks about another thing that we clothe ourselves with. But it takes humility to get there. It takes humility to put this on. In Romans chapter 13, verse 14, Paul says, Clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. And do not think of how to gratify the desires of the flesh. See, Paul instructs us that, that we can't do it on our own, that our version of righteousness is filthy rags compared to God. No matter what we do, no matter how hard we try, we can never be good enough because of our sin. But God made a way. 
that we would be good enough. And he says that, if, that in order to experience the presence of God, in order to enter heaven, we need to clothe ourselves with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We put that on over us so when we stand before the Father in heaven, he looks at us and says, I see the righteousness of my son in your life. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how far away you've walked from God. It doesn't matter the mistakes you've made. I see the righteousness of my son Jesus in your life. And we put that on. We clothe ourselves. Humility is the thing that recognizes our insufficient attempts at righteousness and that we need to put the righteousness of Jesus on in order to come before the Father in heaven. In a moment, we're going to take communion together. And so if you're watching online and and you're near your kitchen, you can run to your kitchen and just grab some juice or some bread or whatever. Just just partake with us. Be a part of this with us. But I want to talk for a moment as before we take communion. And if anybody needs a communion element, uh, maybe we can have an usher bring it to you if you didn't get one on the way in. But here's the thing about communion. Communion really only means something significant if you've said yes to Jesus. You're welcome to partake in it. You're welcome to be a part of it with our church family. But, but unless you've said yes to the person of Jesus, uh, it really doesn't mean a whole lot because communion is the act of realigning yourself with that sacrifice that Jesus made. Jesus instructs us to do this uh, um, to do this by following him. And, and the night that he was taken away to be crucified, he sat at a table with his disciples and he broke bread. And this is what he said to his disciples. He said that this bread, it represents my body that's going to be broken for you. And Isaiah chapter 53 says that it's by his stripes that we are healed. It's by his wounds that we are healed. And so when we take the body, when we, when we participate in this and take communion, what we're doing is we're realigning, reorienting ourselves with the sacrifice that Jesus made, saying, God, I claim that healing on my life, that your body was broken so that mine could be whole, that, your, that you, were, you bore all of the sorrow, you bore all of the guilt and all the shame so I could live free from it. I'm going to ask Jennifer actually to come up wherever she is and I'm going to have her play the keys as we do this together. But, but, but Jesus wants us to come before him once again. And this is why we do this. It's to, to remind ourselves that we're insufficient on our own. It's to humble ourselves before the Lord and say, God, I really do need you. I've walked away. I've done things on my own. And God, I'm coming back and I want to receive that sacrifice once again. And the cup that you hold in your hand represents this, the blood of Jesus. And Jesus drank from this cup and he passed it around to his disciples. And he said that this is my blood that was shed for you. This right here represents the forgiveness of your sin. Maybe you're here this morning and you feel weighed down by your mistakes. Maybe you even, you, you, maybe you're, you stayed home and you decided to watch online because you felt so much shame you couldn't even step into the building. Or maybe you're here this morning and it took everything in you to get here because of all the weight and all the shame that you're carrying. And this is for you. Jesus did this for you so that you could have access to his presence once again. That, that word repentance literally means that in a second to turn away from your, from your past and to turn, turn away and turn towards Jesus and start walking towards Jesus. So I want to extend an invitation to, to, to those in the room. If, if everyone would bow their heads, and close their eyes. Before we take communion, I want to ask people, if you're here this morning 
and you need to come back to Jesus, or maybe you've never made Jesus your Lord and Savior, and you say, I need to make this commitment. I need to make him my Lord and Savior. I realize I can't do this on my own. I would ask that in this moment, I'm going to count to three. Would you raise your hand and on- online? Would you just say amen? And I'm going to lead you in a prayer afterwards. And, and, uh, and my, my heart is that you would be reunited with your creator, with their father that loves you. So here we go. If that's you and you want to say yes to Jesus, on the count of three, raise your hand. One, two, three. Don't hesitate. Don't hesitate. Amen. I see your hands. I see your hands in the room. Anybody else? You can put your hands down. I want everybody to pray this with me. Jesus, I love you. And I'm sorry for trying to do it all on my own. For being so prideful to think that I could get away with my own good deeds. Take this weight from me. I ask you to cleanse me and bring me into a relationship with you, Jesus. Give me your Holy Spirit to keep me in tune with your voice. Give me a new desire for your word. Allow it to feed me and enrich my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Can we give it up for those people who raised their hand this morning? Praise you, Jesus. I want to I say to those of you who raised your hand that you are a new creation, that God doesn't look at the mistakes of your past any longer, that you have clothed yourself with the righteousness of Jesus. And from now on, when he looks at you, he doesn't see who you were. He doesn't see the, the mistakes you made or how far you've wandered away. He sees his son. He sees the person of Jesus Christ. You're clothed in righteousness. So let's take communion together. Take the bread. Father, we thank you for your body. We thank you that we are your people. God, that we can identify with your crucifixion and and with your resurrection and know that your body was broken so that ours could find healing and wholeness. And Father, we take this in remembrance of you. In Jesus' name, let's take this together. Take the cup. Father, we thank you for your blood that was shed on the cross for us. And God, I thank you that you made a way where there was no way we were separate from you. Jesus, you were God. You came into the world humbly as a baby. And you died the worst death possible among sinners. But God, it was your purpose to bring us back into relationship with you. And so, Father, we recognize that that our righteousness alone can't cut it. And we want you, Jesus, we want you so deeply and desperately in our life to be united with you. So let's take this together. Father, we love you and we thank you. And we give you praise in Jesus' name. And the church said, amen. Amen. Let's all stand together, church.